Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the SIFMA podcast. I'm Ken Benson, SIFMA president and CEO. I'm joined today by Ken Sella, a notable leader in the private client wealth management industry who currently leads Edward Jones's client strategy group. We have the pleasure of working with Ken on many issues important to the wealth management community and the individual investor at large in his role as the chair of SIFMA's board level private client wealth management subcommittee. We've been talking a lot recently about just who is invested in America's capital markets. It turns out that it's a wide universe of retail investors. The US capital markets are where people individually and collectively through pension funds and mutual funds invest their savings to seek a return. By putting their capital to work in our markets, they invest in companies that drive innovation. They also invest in state and local infrastructure like roads, schools, and hospitals. Combined, their savings fuel economic growth, job creation, and their financial futures. I'm excited to have Ken with me today to talk about who these investors are and how our industry serves them. So welcome, Ken. Let's dive into today's podcast, The Individual Investor Explored. So Ken, let's start, uh, let's start with a, a few questions. Uh, SIFMA Insights recently published a report, Who Owns Stocks in America, that showed a wide universe of Americans today are invested in stocks. Who are they? And do you find this diversity in the average client at Edward Jones? Yeah, thanks, Ken. It's great to be with you. And this is the right question to start with. Uh, Edward Jones clients own stocks within a framework of diversified portfolios. Um, that this is really how we do business. Uh, we, we align these portfolios to their personal goals and each individual's comfort with risk. Uh, this is supported by our investment philosophy that is based on quality, diversification, and a long-term perspective. You know, Ken, our clients own stock in a variety of ways, um, mutual funds, ETFs, individual securities, the democratization of stock ownership is really alive and well in, in our country today. Exposure to equities through funds enables investors to gain diversification across geographies, sectors, and certainly within companies uh, and, and within a single investment. Uh, and, and that's really key. Owning individual stocks allows investors to further tailor their portfolio to a particular situation and needs that you know, they might have uh, as an investor including considerations like dividend income, as well as preferences uh, about how they wanna invest according to values, which is really important today. More broadly, stock or, or equity ownership, if you will, is an important part of a portfolio and investment strategy that can help investors achieve growth that they need to reach their long-term goals. That's really the key, growth to achieve their long-term goals. An appropriate allocation of fixed income, though, is, is also very important. These fixed income investments can help reduce risk within a portfolio, while an allocation to equity, uh, or stocks, if you will, uh, is a bit higher risk and offers opportunities for potential longer-term growth and price appreciation. Uh, equities also offer the potential for rising dividend income, which is, which is really key, uh, as well as combating the impacts of inflation over time. We know that ownership of equities really uh, does a nice job in those areas. Um, I, I really think that uh, when you ask the question, who are they? It's America today uh, that's invested uh, in, in equities and, and the growth that they need uh, for their financial futures to be responsible for their own uh, financial well-being. Yeah, that's 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 really insightful, and, and that last point in, incredibly important. You know, last year, SIFMA commissioned research from Cerulli Associates exploring the relationship between individual investors who 
in this survey were defined as households with 100,000 to a million dollars of investable assets and their financial advisors. Uh, you were very involved in that process. What did we learn about investors in this in this bracket? Yeah, I absolutely can. I, you know, as a SIFMA board member, I got to tell you, one of the things I've really enjoyed about being part of SIFMA and in that capacity is the unrelenting focus on the individual investor. And that's exactly what this research was after, is to really understand the impacts of our industry and the work that we do every day on individuals. And we've learned a lot through this research. We learned that uh, investors control nearly 23% of investable assets in the U.S. and over $11 trillion. And I should say investors in that $100,000 to $1 million in investable asset range that, that you cited. Um, we also learned that 78% of these investors use a professional advisor, which was really gratifying to hear. Um, another statistic that really popped off the page is, by and large, the majority of the people that we surveyed are very satisfied with their advisor. Nearly 75% would recommend their advisor, and just 1% report being dissatisfied. That was shocking. The primary service they receive, according to the survey, is retirement planning. Already retired individuals um, rely on personal investments for nearly two-thirds of their retirement income. So again, Ken, I think this just reinforces the work that SIFMA does to make this kind of uh, growth and uh, future possible for Americans. So Ken, what are these investors seeking? I mean, why, why do they come to you, to Edward Jones and, and to your competitors uh, in, in the uh, private client space to invest their savings? Yeah, exactly. Because in the information age, they can go anywhere. There's information you know, that, 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 that's available on the internet and do-it-yourself investors. We hear about it all the time, right? Ken, what we are finding is that we, when, when clients' needs are ever-changing like they are and becoming more complex, that's when they want advice. That's when they really need to seek someone uh, that has an opinion that can help them. Oftentimes, uh, what we find is that they come to Edward Jones because of the expertise uh, that we're able to lend. What they expect and need from us is raising the bar for what good and financial advice looks like. You know, there is a service component to this in the, in the information age that we live in. Uh, where companies like Amazon create this environment where the last great experience is the new minimum expectation for, for all of us when we deal with any kind of company. Sometimes this looks like uh, financial advice that is, um, I'll just say advice about well-being, because uh, as we get into these more complex situations and, and really start to understand what a client's goals are, we understand that they're looking for a financial advisor who can contribute key knowledge and empathy to deliver on you know, what that client needs in a very personalized way, because every client situation is different. Clients and financial advisors who understand the way that they're thinking about the now of their goals and needs and the longer term picture uh, as well, um, that, that's really what we're doing. We're finding that there's both of those elements is to balance current needs and longer term needs. And the complexity of all of this is, is the value that a financial advisor brings. You recently published a study with a nine-month investigation into what it means to live well in retirement. What is the new definition of retirement? And can you talk about the four pillars the study outlines? Yeah, you bet, Ken. This was great research. What we found was that retirement is really being redefined. So what may have been a view of retirement that was uh, brought forward many decades ago where someone would go off into later life and, and 
be more reserved and relaxed sitting on the front porch in a, in a rocking chair has changed. Uh, people today realize, you know, retirement uh, can mean very different things. Uh, and, and rather than being a time to wind down, retirement has increasingly been a time of new choices, often new freedoms. Uh, we really are hearing that uh, people want to discover their purpose in retirement. Uh, and we know that there are challenges um, as, as people enter this phase. So what we found through this study is that there are four central pillars for living well in this new retirement. They are health, family, purpose, and finance. And if you think about the order of those, it makes sense, right? We all have concern for our health. Our family always comes first. Most of us want to understand how our purpose can make an impact in the world. And oftentimes the question is, how do we use our finances to do that? Each of these is important and must be tended to in its own way, but there's a lot of overlap between these four pillars. Maintaining your health in retirement, for example, requires that you also tend to your finances. And having purpose and a meaningful, um, I'll say, endeavor in one's life, benefiting one's community, um, the society uh, at large in, in the way that they do that, uh, those are all goals that we're discovering that people have. Ken, I'll just say this. Uh, these are the increasingly complex conditions today that financial advisors are helping their clients navigate through and plan for as they do the important work uh, with, with each client to understand their personal goals. You know, that, I just think that's fascinating. Looking the other direction on this, you know, you know retirement uh, can seem a far way off for younger generations. I think about it as a parent of a soon-to-be 30-year-old and, and another 20-something-year-old. They're at the front end of their careers, and which will probably have multiple changes over time. How is your firm developing its next generation of financial advisors and leaders to serve these investors? Yeah, Kim, we're doing a lot of research in this space too, and we're, we're learning that younger investors are very digitally engaged. Not, not a big epiphany there. We're investing in, a tech, in technology and I'll say digital acceleration to meet the needs and expectations uh, of the younger generation in that regard. At Edward Jones, we did a survey on the digital client experience showing that 95% of the investors polled feel it's important that their financial advisor use the latest technology. And I'll just underscore latest uh, in tools when advising them. But despite the digital shift brought on by COVID-19, which we've all uh, experienced, more than four in five respondents, or 83%, noted that they would prefer to work with a human financial advisor, compared to just 17% who say they would prefer consulting with a robo-advisor. So we know that there's still a place, uh, a very important place for so many investors and even the younger investor population to seek professional advice. Emerging issues like sustainable investing are also a key priority for these investors. We can help younger investors understand the options available and the risks associated with them so they can do sustainable investing that's based on good fundamentals. And that's really important. So maybe maybe taking the technology theme, uh, you know, digging down a little deeper on that. We've talked about this at the board level, on the private client subcommittee level, and at industry conferences around how financial advice is evolving in a more connected and virtual world. So you were just hitting some of those points. How do you see this next generation of advisors changing this landscape? Certainly, we're seeing an increased interest in the use of digital technology and in investing. So that's that's one emerging trend. It's important to note 
that according to the million dollar roundtable study, nearly 90% of Americans want tech to accompany, not replace a human financial advisor. At Edward Jones, we're making a $500 million investment to develop technology and digital innovations that will serve as a guide to our clients and enable, importantly, our financial advisors to deliver an incredible experience because we know that's what every one of our clients wants. When, when we do this, uh, our financial advisors deliver in a way that uh, is consistent with co what clients are anticipating before they even know they have a need or able to discover that need and, and beat them to the punch uh, in terms of that level of experience and satisfaction. These offerings uh, that we're working on will lead to greater flexibility, uh, simplicity, and optionality while helping financial advisors grow, serve, and lead their practices. Right. Great. So maybe maybe stepping back and taking a look at a more holistic, um, uh, you know, what philosophies do you think are important to share or have retail investors consider as they map out their financial future? Yeah, we consistently focus on three key elements uh, when it comes to investing. First is the amount of money invested. Uh, this one's pretty straightforward. The more you invest, the better your chances of reaching your financial goals. Uh, so we find that that's often a place that we have to have uh, a critical conversation is helping our clients um, to understand what's necessary and to maybe stretch to uh, make that additional investment rather than uh, buying something additional. And that's, that's a tough choice sometimes. Uh, the second idea, um, you know, and really what we think that, uh, you know, is a key element number two is time in the market. We stress the importance of staying invested through ups, downs, uh, sideways markets, all kinds of markets. When investors take the time out from the markets, they lose opportunities. So staying invested is key. The third element is returns. We don't promise high returns at Edward Jones. That's not what we're about. Uh, but what we do talk about are the types of returns a client might need to achieve uh, in order to accomplish a specific goal, such as retiring early, for example. Uh, closely related to this conversation is conveying the importance of diversification and reducing risk while providing appropriate growth opportunities at the same time. So it really comes down to those three elements, Ken, amount of money invested, time in the market, and then the returns that are, are suitable to reach goals. So clearly the message needs to be loud and clear and individuals of all income levels should be able to get started in investing, invest for the long-term and consider working with financial advisor. How can we encourage that? It helps to understand the reasons why we are so strongly recommending that everyone, regardless of their current financial position or investment picture, work with a financial advisor. So let me, let me just share some statistics around this that I think might, might be really helpful. Three of four U.S. consumers who work with a financial advisor said that they were more confident in their financial future as a result of this relationship. Consider this fact, professional financial advice can add between one and a half and 4% to portfolio returns over the long-term. That's compelling. And a third statistic that I'll share, Ken, is that individuals who receive advice have a minimum of 25% more assets than non-advised individuals. So if this isn't a case for advice, I don't know what is. Those are really compelling statistics. Uh, so, so Ken, maybe to close, um, what is your biggest piece of advice for someone considering whether to invest their money? You bet, Ken. It's pretty simple. Uh, don't wait. Start today. 
uh, start as small as you need to um, to start, but, but it's important to get the habit of setting aside money as soon as you possibly can. And then a good financial advisor can help you take those initial steps and, and really help you understand all of your options so that when you do start to invest, it's based on your personalized goals. Great. Well, Ken, it, it's always good to talk to you on, on, on these issues. And I thank you for you know, participating in today's podcast. And now we continue our conversation on the individual investor with insights to an exciting new study on the U.S. investor. I'd like to welcome our next guest, uh, Dan Swainer, who is the president and general manager of the data and analytics business for Broadridge and whose team produced the study. Dan, welcome uh, to the SIFMA podcast. Hello, Ken, and uh, it's quite an honor to be part of the SIFMA podcast series, and I really appreciate you for uh, taking the time. Thanks for having me. So this is a this study is is literally hot off the presses and 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 very exciting uh, uh, information. Maybe maybe to start um, and, and and we can go back and forth. I mean, maybe just lay out the scope of the survey. What 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 were you all at Broadridge trying to accomplish? Uh, and and the data is just incredible that's in there. Yes, thank you. We are very, very excited about the study and uh, the Broadridge study is quite novel and I would call it an evidence-based study and a compare and contrast it with your traditional survey. And so what we didn't do was go to the mall on a Saturday afternoon with some clipboards and ask people questions and hope they remembered things. What we did do was analyze billions and billions of data points uh, and the data behind the study represents about 44 million U.S. households, which equate to almost a third of all U.S. households. And so in those households, we see about 67 million investors. And so these are investors that specifically invest in mutual funds, ETFs, and equities. And collectively, they have about $7 trillion in assets. And so these are investors specifically who invest through financial intermediaries held in taxable accounts and IRAs. Yeah, I think that's important. A lot of studies you see, importantly, focus on sort of the broad investment portfolio, including uh, you know defined uh, contribution accounts uh, like four hundred one ks, four hundred three bs, and the like, which are important. But uh, sometimes that gets lost in in discussions over sort of the discretionary investment or taxable in, uh, investment accounts uh, that are out there. Um, you also looked at in the study, you looked at different groups of investors, right? So you looked at at, at mass market, mass affluent, and 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 high net worth, uh, and then you looked at different generational trends. So maybe go into some of that. Yes. So we had an opportunity to uh, segment the data a lot of different ways, and uh, we're, we're pretty excited with some of the results that came out. Um, and in particular, we so when you step back, there's there's a couple things to think about when, when you look at the results. And there are always two things going on, and they're, they're related, but not directly related. And there's what the market does. And so behind the data, the market goes up and the market goes down. And then there's what an investor and an advisor does either in anticipation of or in response to the market. So there's always two effects that are going on. And so you may see assets rise up. Is that because more money came into the market or is that because the market was up? And so these are things that we put into the background and sort of tried to put everything we did in context of, of, of the overall market. 
And so a couple things that we looked at were uh, how assets changed over time. And the time period that we looked at included data from 2017, 18, 19, and then through mid 20. We'll be augmenting our data set with a new study coming out about mid-year with the remainder of the, the 2020 data set. And so we were interested to see how household assets changed. And we were also interested to see how the COVID uh, crisis impacted investing. And so when you look at the time period from 17 through 20, we looked at median household assets growing from about $56,000 to $59,000. And uh, not all generational segments adapted the same to the COVID crisis. And so if you look at the boomer and silent generations in, in particular, they were at or above their pre-COVID levels while Gen X and millennials still weren't back to their pre-COVID levels by, by mid uh, 2020. And so these are some things that we really wanna watch on a go forward basis. Yeah, any, anything you might attribute that to? You know, it could be, uh, and again, we really hope to drill into this. And I think there are a couple of things that come to mind that we'll be looking at. Uh, one, younger people tend to have more aggressively allocated portfolios. And so they may have had uh, a portfolio that perhaps uh, moved more in response to the, to the drop in the market early last year. And uh, also uh, there could be effect of people needing assets to actually live on if, if their jobs were eliminated. And so there are a lot of background effects that are going on, as I said, in addition to simply investing. And then I, what about, the, you know, what insights can we gain from sort of the, the different generational segments, uh, you know, beyond that? And so we were always looking for uh, the aha moments and a, and a couple that came out in particular were uh, the increasing importance of millennials and uh, the, the millennials have increased over the time period that we studied, not only in terms of number of investors, but the actual share of assets that they are investing. And in particular, we saw the share of assets uh, double, while small, move from about 2% of total assets we studied to about 4%. It's a trend line that you have to pay attention to. We were also interested in a very sharp increase in the use of equities amongst millennials uh, and so, for example, if you look just the period from 2019 to mid-2020, we saw uh, equity, equities become uh, a significant portion of uh, millennial portfolio. So they rose from about 23% to about 31%. We also saw equity increase in the Gen X uh, segment as well. And so equities are, are certainly becoming more, more popular. Yeah, I thought that very interesting. Um, the, the other thing uh, that you point out in there is, is looking at the trend lines across uh, different, um, uh, I don't know what you would call them, asset holding classes or, or you know, the differences, particularly looking at, at what's happening with the mass market and, and you know, the growth trends there uh, and the mass affluent markets. Yes, the mass market is something that, uh, that, that I think is an opportunity for uh, advisors and broker platforms. And I think that uh, it was also another aha moment for us was this, this growing influence of the mass market. We could call it the democratization of, of investing. And we saw the mass market grow in terms of both 
number of investors and assets defined by mass market. So what is the mass market? The mass market uh, was the lowest level of assets that we looked at. And so think of the mass market as an investor with less than $100,000 uh, in their uh, portfolio to manage through, through an intermediary. Uh, whereas uh, the mass affluent were from the 100,000 to roughly a million and then high net worth was a million and over. And so when we look at uh, the increasing number of uh, participants that, that fall into this category, we were particularly interested to note that these are new people coming into the market, new accounts being created in particular, bulk, the bulk of that growth is new, new people coming into the market as investors, which is very encouraging. And so when you drill into the mass market, we were sort of interested to understand, well, who is the mass market? And so we looked at the geography of the mass market and we found that most of uh, the single largest geographic region of the mass market is the South. And if you combine the South with the Midwest, more than 50% of the mass market is located in those two geographies. And it's also interesting to note that it tends to be younger people, uh, more than 50% when you combine millennial with Gen X, more than 50% of the mass market fall into those two uh, age cohorts. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, with this study being released, the, the initial uh, 2020 census data uh, has been coming out this week. And, it, it, you know, certainly the South has had tremendous growth uh, as compared to other jurisdictions, or other regions, I should say, uh, um, but but you know whether or not there's a correlation there is, is something interesting to think about. The other thing that I thought was interesting and it, it, it is looking at um, the the investment channels that you found uh, both in terms of of you know between mass market and 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 mass affluent, but also generationally. Um, uh, you know, the, the use of broker dealers, uh, um, you know, I guess defined as advisors, not part of a wirehouse, um, but in particular compared to online, online, certainly a, a decent share, but, but maybe sort of breaking the stereotype out there that, that millennials are, are, are online only that, that data doesn't show that at all. Yeah, and I think it, you know that that was another aha moment for us was that you know you tend to uh, you could very easily be led to believe through headlines in the market that that young people do everything online and uh, they, they they certainly be very uh, uh, savvy users of technology. But it was interesting to note uh, that the broker-dealer channel was a very significant place. And so it is true that young people work with advisors. They also tend to also have accounts uh, on their uh, self-directed platforms. And so you have to keep in mind that many of these individuals have multiple, uh, multiple ways of managing their money. And so it's important to keep in mind that there is still a very important role for the advisor for managing uh, young people's money. And they're going to have more money over time. You know, you mentioned the equity trends, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, you also indicated a, a shift from uh, uh, in, in, in uh, share class from A classes to institutional shares, and and then and then uh, and then again, you know, probably something maybe not as aha, but but the growth of ETF. How would you go over all the trend lines you saw there? 
And so, you know, there, there's an interesting couple uh, couple stories uh, that, that I think come out of that, and that is there is a tremendous focus on cost, and uh, you see that with the use of institutional share classes, and you see that with the trend towards greater usage of uh, ETF products. And the uh, there's a couple things to think about there, and I think that the fiduciary standard is alive and well. If you went back, uh, perhaps even a dozen years ago, you would see that it was probably mostly high net worth households that were taking advantage of a lower cost of investing through institutional share classes. And we saw growth of institutional share classes at every wealth level, which is wonderful to see that, that uh, individuals are being able to avail themselves of less expensive share classes. And at the same time, there has been a clear drive to greater use of exchange-traded products. ETFs have some tax efficiency. ETFs have uh, some cost advantages. ETFs have a speed advantage. You can buy and sell them like uh, equities. And so these are trend lines that we've been tracking for some time. And I think you're going to see a continued use of those kinds of products. And then you, you touched on this a little bit, but you know, again, going back to millennials representing a high growth segment, um, your data shows, you know, obviously the, you know, the 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 reality of the arc of time, but the uh, uh, but but you know, millennials are coming up at a fairly decent clip as the silent generation moves along. Um, what do you interpret from the data? Is a, a intergenerational transfer of wealth? Yes, I think we're starting to see, as you, as you look at some of the demographics and shifts, I think you're starting to see some generational wealth transfer in the data. We'll be taking a hard look at this when we update our study here very shortly, and we'll be tracking this over time. And we're seeing that just in terms of number investors by segments, we're seeing it assets by segment. We saw both high net worth as well as the, 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 the silent generation uh, seeming to trend more towards the, the, the assets driving to, to, the, to the younger uh, population. And so that's going to be something interesting to track. And we've been talking about this for decades. I think we're starting to see it happen. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty, pretty important thing for people to be aware of. What else should we be looking for uh, from the team at Broadridge uh, related to this study and, 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 the, and you know, the, the retail investment market? So I think you mentioned it already, the, the new census data is out. So we'll be applying uh, some of that as background analysis uh, and factoring that in. We're pretty excited to be looking at the second half of 20. And uh, there's going to be a couple of things that you're going to be seeing here by mid-year. Not only will we have a full set of 2020, which will give us a, a pretty relevant year-over-year -year comparison to continue our trend from 17, 18, 19, 20, but we're going to be comparing the time span of first half of 20 to the second half of 20. And when you think about some of the major headlines, COVID hits in the first half, we had an election in the second half. And so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what, what, what happened at a more, more uh, detailed and granular level. And so that's pretty exciting. We're going to continue to look at instrument use. We're, we're, we've seen a pretty long-term trend and focus on cost. And I think you're going to see uh, a very uh, a continued trend line of, of ETF growth. I think you're going to see some, some more equity growth. And so these are all things that we'll be exploring in more detail uh, uh, and, and you mentioned it again, the, the, the generation wealth transfer as well. Well, that's great. Um, and, and the full survey we've talked about today, that's available now on the, on the Broadwood site? 
That's correct. You can find it a couple of different ways. You can look for our press release that just came out announcing the survey. There's a link to download the uh, survey. You can also go to www.broadridge.com slash us-investor-insights and you will directly get the study. So there's a few ways uh, to get to it, but uh, please take a look and give us some feedback. Great. Well, Dan, thank you very much for spending some time with us and uh, we'll look forward to uh, uh, the next body of work that comes out and, and maybe we'll, we'll be able to get back together and, and have a discussion about that. We'd love to. I think there's some interesting, exciting things to come out and thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time today. Great. Thank you. To learn more about SIFMA and all that we're doing to explore the individual investor, visit SIFMA.org.